Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. You're listening to the Nature Podcast, and this week a new way of charging your gadgets on the move. A compound that's tough on infection, but gentle on the body's good bugs. And what we can learn about music from a group of rather special prodigies. This is The Nature Podcast for June the 15th, 2017. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. First this week, Sharmini has been imagining a world where her phone never runs out of juice, where wireless charging is the norm. Electricity is great. I'm personally a big fan. But getting hold of it can be a bit inconvenient. My mobile phone sometimes runs down before I can get to a plug socket to recharge it. My wall clock at home is permanently at ten past two because I never get round to putting new batteries in. And when I one day purchase that electric car that I will definitely be able to afford, I'll need to make sure to charge it before every big trip. Wouldn't life be easier if electricity was wireless? You could charge devices by being close to a power source instead of having to actually plug it in. That would mean you could power your phone or car from public charging stations as you travel along the streets. It seems like a bit of a distant dream at the moment, and it's a dream that goes all the way back to Nikola Tesla. One century ago, he was convinced that uh, wireless charging was the future. This is Geoffroy Lerze, a physicist who's working on new ways to manipulate electromagnetic fields. Unfortunately, Tesla's idea for wireless charging, using electromagnetic waves to transfer the energy, wasn't very practical. You need to send a lot of energy, so there's a good chance you're going to burn everything that's in between your antenna and uh, and the receiving point. Not ideal if you're trying to charge your smartphone on the move. But since then, scientists and engineers have been considering less hazardous alternatives. And in recent decades, they've made some progress. Take electric toothbrushes, for example. Sure, the toothbrush and base need to be close to each other, but there are no wires connecting them. In other words, it's wireless power transfer. But there are limitations with existing technologies. Pretty much all of them are very short-range technologies. You need to place your device right on top of the charger. This is all very well for things like toothbrushes and phones, 
but some technologies need a more flexible approach to charging. There are a lot of biological implants, uh, like medical implants in the body, that need to be powered. But the problem is that in the body, the implants are always moving. So it's quite difficult to, to power these, these, uh, these, these objects in, in real time with the current technology. Being able to charge a moving object is a key limitation of current systems. So Geoffroy was excited to see a paper in this week's Nature that describes a simple way to charge devices dynamically. In other words, being able to uh, wirelessly uh, send power efficiently uh, to an object that's actually moving. This is Shanhui Fan, who led the study. I rang him up to find out how the wireless charging that already exists works. If you basically take these two resonant coils, place them uh, in somewhat close proximity to each other, then you can basically get power to go from one to the other. And is this like the sort of physics experiments um, you might do in school where you can use electricity to induce magnetism or magnetism to induce electricity? Is that how these two coils are sort of inducing each other? Right. The current inside each of the coil generates a magnetic field and the magnetic field is then felt by the other coil uh, generating the current there and that basically gives you the power transfer. And how far apart can these coils be to get energy transferred from one to the other? You could actually get a, a few meters, but in many practical scenarios, uh, being able to transfer on the order of meter scale is probably sufficient. And it sounds like the, the basic physics is there. You get two coils, you use them to sort of induce each other and, and transfer energy between them. Um, so what's the problem with the existing technology for wireless power transfer? It is efficient, but for every distance where you have efficient transfer, you need to reconfigure some part of the circuit to do so. So for each distance that the thing that you want to charge is away from the power source, you have to tune it to make sure that the energy is being optimally transferred so you're not wasting and losing loads of energy. Exactly. So let's say I'm carrying a cell phone and I'm walking around in my room and I want to charge my cell phone as I'm walking around, I will basically need to retune the circuits, right? In principle, you can do it, but uh, it adds the complexity of the entire system. It might be possible to have this, have a sort of constantly retuning circuit with the current technology to enable you to move your phone or move your car while still charging. Um, but you guys have come up with a slightly different solution? Yeah, so what we have shown is a way uh, so that you can move around, but the system basically self adjust and they self-tune into the optimum condition for efficient wireless power transfer. And the way you've done it is actually quite different from the way that the existing technology does it, isn't it? In the standard way of doing many of these wireless power transfer schemes, they will have a a radio frequency source uh, which provides the power uh, to uh, to one of the coil, to drive one of the coil, and then that coil through the magnetic induction drive the other coil. And then you can adjust, for example, the frequency of this source. As it turned out, if you put an amplifier on the source coil, then under the right condition, the system will start to generate an oscillating electromagnetic field. And the frequency of that oscillation happened to be exactly the optimum frequency uh, for, uh, for efficient wireless power transfer. So if you move the two coils slightly further apart, then the natural frequency of oscillation they fall into is the optimal for that distance. Exactly. So instead of uh, imagining, you know, a external tuning circuits, now uh, the system basically uh, just take care of it by itself. So have you solved all the problems of wireless energy transfer now? 
I think actually uh, there are a lot of interesting new opportunities that our work will open up. For example, uh, one can imagine more complicated transfer schemes involving multiple coils to cover a wider range of areas. So I think actually there are a lot of interesting things that can be done. The point is uh, not necessarily in enabling wireless transfers, but making it more flexible and more usable. That was Shan Hui Fan. Professor of Electrical Engineering at Stanford University, talking to Shamini Bandel about his new paper on wireless power transfer. You also heard from Geoffroy Le Rosé at the Langevin Institute in Paris, who's written a News & Views article on the new research. You can find both of those at nature.com forward slash nature. And still to come, musical thinking and mental health research in the US goes back to basics. But first, a couple of things you already know. Number one, lots of infections are resistant to antibiotics. Number two, this is a big problem. Yes, scientists could develop new antibiotics, or they could find entirely different ways of battling these bugs. And this week we have an example of that second approach. Regular antibiotics work by killing the bugs, by making their cell walls leaky, for instance, or stopping them making proteins. A team from Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, had a different idea. They didn't try to kill the bacteria. They figured they'd stop them physically clinging to the areas they infect. They were working with E. coli, which can cling to the bladder and cause urinary tract infections, which are very common. There are 150 million UTIs worldwide every year, and they're often resistant to antibiotics. I spoke to Caitlin Spaulding and Scott Holtgren about their results. Scott first. One of the key events in the critical stages of most bacterial infections is the ability of the bacteria to stick to and colonize the various uh, habitats and tissues in the body. Because if the, if the bacteria can't stick, they get washed away by the fluids and materials that bathe those surfaces. So to stick, they often use these hair-like fibers called pili that are tipped with adhesins and adhesins recognize receptors on tissues like a lock and a key. Caitlin Spaulding, Scott was just telling us that bacteria have ways of kind of sticking to the gut and um, being kept in the gut kind of against the tide, if you like. What is it exactly, if we zoom in on a cell, what is it exactly that would allow them to stay there? So as, as Scott mentioned, these um, organisms, bacteria in general, carry pili, and they're these hair-like fibers that allow um, the organisms to stick to different ligands. And when we look at UPEC, or uropathogenic E. coli, which is the um, bacterium that causes most urinary tract infections, UPEC bacteria express these pili, and it allows them to bind um, to different Um, sugars or uh, glycans that are present throughout the intestinal tract. And so depending on um, where they are in the gut, they can express different types of pili and allow them to bind to different ligands. We've got these bacteria floating around that are kind of, they've got their little hands sticking out and on the end of the hand is like a piece of Velcro. And that's essentially what's enabling them to, with a compatible uh, receptacle for the Velcro on the gut wall, that's what's allowing them to stick. That's exactly right. So I suppose the tantalizing thought is, well, if you could somehow take the Velcro off um, and stop them from sticking, would they just float harmlessly 
through the gut and the bladder. Yeah, that is, um, that's exactly what we were thinking. Our lab, in collaboration with um, some chemists, have developed small molecules that essentially stick in the binding pocket of that adhesin. So you could put um, another piece of Velcro, if you will, into the hand of that pillus, and it prevents then the interaction of the pillus with the surface of the intestine. And so what we did was we took mice and we orally gave them these compounds. And um, what we found is that you can indeed reduce the number of these bacteria in the gut by giving this compound orally. Um, And it's also not an antibiotic, and that's pretty useful, isn't it? That's really useful because uh, for a number of different reasons, if this therapeutic translates over to uh, uh, the potential for human use, and if uh, if it's efficacious, it would allow us to reduce the dependence on antibiotics for the treatment of UTI, which is very important. Also, these compounds, since they don't kill the bacteria, uh, we believe that there would be less resistance being, uh, less selection for resistance to develop. And, and finally, since these compounds don't have to cross a membrane to get into the bacteria to work, they evade all of these resistance uh, mechanisms bacteria have, like pumping antibiotics out of the cell or degrading them. They just need to bind to the tips of these hair-like fibers to prevent them from being able to colonize. Um, Caitlin, when you watched this compound have its effect in the mice that you used for the experiment, did you also watch what happened to the gut bacteria they have living in them and not causing them any problems? You know, the, the, the good guys, as it were. Yes, absolutely. So that's one of, the, one of the major things we wanted to look at, because when you give a compound orally, obviously you're exposing not just the organism you want to get rid of, but all of the bacteria present in the gut. Um, And so what was exciting is that we found that if you give this compound um, and look at the microbiota or all of those bacteria or microbes that are present in the gut, the compound itself is really not having much of an effect on the overall structure of the microbiota. It's leaving these, you know, innocent bystander organisms, if you will, alone, which is exciting. And that is in stark contrast to what we see with um, antibiotic treatment. That was Scott Holtgren and PhD student Caitlin Spaulding. They're both at Washington University in St. Louis. And if you're wondering what happens next, Holtgren told me that he's formed a company to try and get their compound to the clinic in collaboration with GlaxoSmithKline. There's a paper and a news and views at nature.com nature. The research highlights are next, read by Sharmini Bandel. Data from the Rosetta spacecraft, which crash-landed on a comet last year, is still helping scientists solve mysteries. And this week, it's a puzzle about the noble gas, xenon. Xenon comes in a few different flavours, or isotopes, and the mix of these isotopes in Earth's atmosphere is different from the mixture in the rest of the solar system. Scientists used Rosetta to look at the xenon emanating from Comet 67P and found a match for some of Earth's xenon. Based on the data, they reckon that almost a quarter of Earth xenon came from comets. And if that's true for xenon, then why not water and other life-supporting substances? Find the paper in Science. Mice whose hearing is damaged by loud noises could be treated with more noise. Researchers played 45 minutes of siren-level noise to mice and looked at how parts of their brains reorganised in response to the noise. This gave the mice the equivalent of tinnitus, 
and they couldn't distinguish little silent gaps in a passage of noise. But if they piped white noise into their cages afterwards, the mice didn't have the same hearing deficit. They did have to play the white noise for seven days, but they suggest that it stopped the circuits from reorganising in response to the loud noise. More in the Journal of Neuroscience. I have a quick announcement before we carry on with the show. In a couple of weeks' time, I'm giving up my podcast hot seat after almost a decade of hosting The Nature Show. I'm not going far. I'm moving to Nature's features team. And if the podcast gang let me, I'll be back in the studio now and again with stories from my new desk. Before I go, I'll be hosting another episode of Backchat at the very least. So look out for that. But for now, on with the show. Time now for a musical interlude. Jeff Marsh has been to meet an extraordinary musician by the name of Derek Paravicini. Hello, Jeff. I'm Derek. Hi. Nice to meet you, Derek. I play the piano, Jeff. It's a nice piano. It is, Jeff, yeah. And you're going to play us something now, are you? I am, Jeff. I'm going to play you Ave Maria, Jeff. This is Derek Paravicini playing one of the thousands of songs he's committed to memory. It's possible that you've seen Derek on the television or playing in some of London's esteemed musical venues like the Barbican, but his current celebrity comes after a bumpy start. He was born very premature at just 25 weeks, blind and on the autism spectrum. I'm meeting Derek because he's a major character in a new book by psychologist and music therapist Adam Ockelford. Adam thinks we can learn a lot about music by working with people like Derek, who perceive the world in a different way. The two have known each other since Derek was just five. We all meet at Derek's house in South London and sit in his spacious front room with a wind chime sparkling above our heads. Well, the room would be spacious if it didn't have two pianos in it. Has Derek always been uh, an easy student? An easy student. Derek, have you always been an easy student? Yes, I have, Adam. No, you haven't. I haven't been an easy student, no. <laughs> Derek, you're, you've always been a lovely person. But um, I think, Derek, like lots of children on the autism spectrum, when you were little, the world was just such a confusing place. It was really only when your music started to take off from the age of about eight, really, that um, the world became less of a threatening place and more of a place to be relished. Suddenly you had this way of making friends, and that was what changed everything. Derek, like all child musical prodigies apparently, has a precious ability called absolute pitch. It's an unusual memory for pitch. And for most people, if I just play a note... Derek, I'm just going to play on my own. So for most people, if I just play a note, say, down the bottom... (laughs) So, hold on, Derek. So I'm going to explain absolute pitch. So you don't have to copy it, Okay. So for most people, if I just play a note down the the bottom end of the keyboard, say down here somewhere... You can't resist, can you? Derek, sit on your hands for a minute. (laughs) Put your hands on your bottom, right? Stay still. It became clear pretty quickly that for Derek, hearing a note on the piano and not responding was tantamount to torture. It's clearly his favourite mode of communication with Adam. (laughs) Eventually, Adam explained that absolute pitch is a memory of the exact tone of a sound. It might be a musical note, but it could equally be the pitch of a whirring microwave. In a typical Western population, only one in a thousand people have absolute pitch. But when you look at a population of people blind from birth, that number shoots up. In fact, it's 4,000 times more likely amongst 
children born blind or who lose their sight shortly after birth. I've worked a lot with hundreds of blind babies, and if you watch the way they interact with the world, they sit or they lie, and they take in sound. What they don't do that, that sighted babies do is to ascribe meaning to the sounds. Now, most blind babies then do go on to associate sounds with meaning either as words or as everyday sounds like a door slamming or a car engine but by then by 24 months the absolute memories of pitches have been laid down and they never go if you have them at 24 months and why do you think that we see a similar pattern with children born on the autistic spectrum i think in in some ways autism in the early years can have a similar effect to not being able to see because the brain takes in stimuli in in an absolute way, doesn't ascribe meaning to them in the same way. So in classic autism, which is the autism where language doesn't tend to develop, there's all these blobs of sound coming out of people's mouths and they don't mean anything. They don't associate themselves with anything in the brain. And so for autistic children, as for blind children, sound tends to stay at that absolute level. You know, when I started in music psychology about 35 years ago, there were various models of musical development. And I used to stand up in conferences and say, well, that's not a good model of musical development because it doesn't include the children I work with. I then over the years thought actually if I can crack how extreme people do things it's then easier to look back as it were down into the middle of the the spectrum that we're all on and to understand that and I suppose people say Derek are you creative and I think yeah Derek's very creative creative. because if I just play for any notes just randomly and say Derek make me a blues on that can make you a blues on that Adam So what can exceptional people like Derek tell us about the neurotypical brain? One example that Adam gave surrounded the nature-nurture debate, that old chestnut. Music theorists, too, wonder if our musical abilities are a product of our genes or our environment. Blindness in childhood often doesn't have a genetic cause, and yet 40% of children born blind go on to develop absolute pitch. So, Adam suggests that it's our environment that contributes most to our musical abilities. Give young ears the right amount of musical stimulation, and you might just release their inner prodigy. That was Derek Paravicini on the piano with tutor and music theorist Adam Ockelford. Adam's new book is called Comparing Notes, How We Make Sense of Music. And there's a review of it this week at nature.com forward slash books and arts. 
Time for this week's news chat and on the line from Washington DC is one of our reporters, Sarah Reardon. Hi Sarah. Hi Kerry. Now a little while ago you covered quite a big shift in how one of the US National Institutes of Health, the, the Institute of Mental Health, is funding mental health research. And this week you've analysed how that has all been going. Now what happened before? So this, I've actually been covering this for several years. This is a kind of a long-running saga of psychiatry kind of trying to figure itself out. Um, there's been a very little progress made in mental health research in terms of drug development and therapy development over the past couple of decades. Um, lots of stuff we've learned a lot about the brain, but not a lot that's actually made it into the clinic. And the theory that the former NIMH director had and the one before him and many other people, growing number of scientists, is that we're this is because we're looking at mental illness in the wrong way, that we're trying to categorize people by saying, you have depression, so we're going to give you a depression drug, as opposed to looking at more specific things about them, like why do they have depression? Maybe they have a certain gene that's causing them to have these depressed feelings. Maybe there's a certain pattern of brain activity that's causing them to have suicidal thoughts. And the problem with doing that is that you would be lumping all of these people together in one diagnosis of depression, whereas there might be a whole lot of differences actually between them. So then for for a few years, it sounds like people at the Institute um, who are in charge of the funding have been thinking about going back to basics. Yeah, and so they, they want to, what they want to do is um, sort of strip down mental illness into these components. If we can identify the biological roots, maybe we can actually develop a drug that will target this particular brain connection of this particular uh, molecule. And so they developed this thing called RDOC, which stands for the Research Domain Criteria. And it is sort of like this chart, this matrix that they want people to fill out over time, looking at these characteristics like genetics or like a very specific symptom that someone might have, like suicidal feelings. Um, and this was controversial because at the same time they were rolling this out, they made a lot of statements about how clinical trials as they're being done are kind of useless and there's been um, not a lot of progress made and they also said they weren't going to fund any clinical trials that were only looking at these categories that have existed before like anxiety, depression, etc. And so this upset a lot of people who have been funding their entire careers working in this former framework. Why do we now have to shift over into this new one? And so now that we're a few years out in 2017, we can kind of start to look at these trends of has this had any sort of impact on the way that mental health research is conducted and how are people feeling about it? And uh, that's what you look into this week in this kind of deep dive into RDOC. What have been the repercussions in terms of the, pro the kinds of projects they've been funding? Have they done what they said they were going to do? They are definitely funding a lot more projects that have to do with RDOC. Um, one of the things I looked at was how many projects have mentioned RDOC or one of the kind of words that would be associated with like circuitry or a biomarker, which would be a biological marker of a specific illness or transdiagnostic, which is this word that they've coined for a um, study that would include people who have multiple different psychiatric diagnoses. So maybe they would have ADHD and I don't know, autism together and looking at any of the common characteristics that those kids would share. Um, and so words like that and mentions of RDOC have just completely spiked in the past couple of years. Um, at the same time, the funding for clinical trials 
especially clinical trials as have been traditionally done, has gone down a lot. Um, they've been finding a lot more basic research and a lot less clinical research. And there's probably various reasons for that. Um, scientists who've been working in clinical research want to claim that this is because NIMH doesn't care about it. They want to just do basic research and understand how the brain works and not actually what can be done for patients right now. Whereas the NIMH says, okay, yes, we've shifted away from this particular framework people have been using, but we still do want to do clinical trials. They say that nobody's been applying for, or not nobody, but fewer people have been applying for clinical trial money. Did you get the sense from psychiatrists you spoke to or mental health um, researchers that traditional psychiatry, if we can call it that, is kind of being sidelined? I mean, how do people who do this research feel about the new framework? They, they, do, they do think that they're being sidelined. Um, and I th- there's, a, there's a new NIMH director that came in last summer, I guess, and he might be more open to shifting these parameters around, maybe not quite forcing this in their, in their eyes, forcing this thing down their throats. People are maybe feeling a little less upset about it than they were a few years ago when they felt like, they had no choice but to use this. And is this, would you say this is still an experiment on the part of the National Institute for Mental Health? Or, I mean, how long are they going to give it before they decide, yes, this is the only way we're going to fund research? Or, OK, maybe we'll soften our approach slightly? Well, they, they wouldn't give me a deadline. Um, but they are, um, the, the new director actually just last week had a blog post talking about how they he saw this as an experiment, just like you said. Um, he wants to continue doing it, but at the same time, he, as we learn more, he's open to revising them and making it a more evidence-based um, framework in the future. Did you get the sense, this might be difficult for you to answer, that scientists, researchers are kind of gaming the system in some way, just doing the same science with a slightly different slant, putting in another condition name and sending the same grant application off? I I have heard that. I've heard the same thing about um, publications and journals that people will be um, just kind of name-checking our doc or just like, oh, look, this is actually transdiagnostic because we included a few ADHD kids in with our autism kids um, and hoping that that will get them NIMH money. And I've heard that from a lot of people who didn't really want their names used. That certainly seems to be the feeling in the field that even if people aren't admitting that they're doing it, they've heard of many cases where that is happening. Sarah Reardon in DC, thank you. There's more on both those stories at nature.com slash news. That's it for this week. Over the next two weeks, we are taking a little break as we recover from the emotional trauma of losing Kerry Smith. But never fear, in the meantime, there will be an episode of Backchat and more than likely some other goodies to keep you entertained. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. (laughs) Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. <laughs> yeah. 